story is told of a pirate who retired and makes a claim for disability. After many years of, um, at sea as a pirate, he decides it was time to retire. And since he had suffered injuries on the job, he thought he could apply for disability insurance. So he had lost his, uh, he had lost one of his legs. He had a wooden leg. He had lost uh, his eye. He had also uh, had a patch on his eye and uh, he lost his right hand. So he went and applied for disability insurance. So the agency assured him that he would be compensated if the injuries were proven to be work-related. And the first question that she asked was, how did you lose your leg? And in a booming voice, he replied, well, mate, you see, it was like this. Me and me mates were on the high seas, and the boom, she swung around, knocked me into the sea, where a shark bit off me leg. He goes, okay, that sounds work-related. Well, uh, how, did the, how did you lose your right hand? Well, you see, mateys, we're on the high sea, and the boom, she swung around and knocked me into the sea, and a shark, she bit off my hand. Oh, that sounds work-related, too. He says, well, how'd you lose, uh, how, what's up with the patch in your eye? How'd you, uh, well, you see, I was laying out on the deck one balmy sunny day, catching some rays, when a seagull, she flew by and dropped her duty right in my eye. He says, well, dropped your, well, I, well, I don't understand, how, how did you lose your eye? He says, oh, it was my first day with me hook. <laughs> the first day with me hook. You gotta love that. You know, when I was uh, thinking about that story, for you know, sh- you know, whisper to the person next to you that's not smiling. You know, God does have a sense of humor, and uh, obviously by the fact that He got people here that don't like to smile, <laughs> so that's pretty funny, right in and of itself. But what's interesting is I was thinking about the story, and the thing that made the story interesting to me is this: there's always something dangerous about having something new. Sometimes we're not really sure how to handle it. We're not sure what to do with it. And uh, I thought about that in light of our study in the book of Daniel as we experience new information that has to do with prophecy or God telling us of things to come in the future. One of the things that I have become convinced of, and that is this, that God is not a God of chaos, nor is he a God of confusion. But he's a God of clarity and he's a God of purpose. And he wants us to know clearly what his plans are for man. He does not want us to be ignorant and uninformed. Throughout the Bible, we see that word used often. In fact, in Thessalonians, for example, it says, Concerning the dead, my brethren, I don't want you to be what? Uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant as to what happens after death. I want you to know everything. Jesus went on to say this. Hey, I, I don't have any secrets from you, he told his disciples. Because a friend doesn't have secrets from another friend. I've exposed all that you need to know, the full counsel of God. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to be confused. And as a result, he doesn't want us to fall overboard in the area of the study of prophecy. He doesn't want us to get uh, crazy in some of our ideas. He doesn't want us to speculate and to go off the deep end. But he wants us to know the truth, and he clearly presents it. And it's amazing to me how difficult at times we make the clear word of God become when God never designed it to be that way. It is very simple in its approach to teaching us truth. And as we dig into it and look at it, God obviously reveals what his, who he is, number one, what his will is for man, number two, and also what his, what his desires are or commands for man as far as how to walk in a way or live your life in a way that's pleasing to God. God has no secrets as far as those areas are concerned. He wants us to understand all of that. You know, it's interesting, we said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all of Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. 
that nothing that we read in the Word of God comes from the mind of man who decides, oh, we need to add something to it. But holy men of God who were moved, literally moved or led by the Spirit of God to record for us the thoughts and the mind, the will and the purpose and the plan of God. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for what? For instruction, to teach us the things that we do not, up to this point, we don't know. As you walked in here today, there are things that you will hear today that you didn't know before you came in. That's instruction. God doesn't want you to live in the dark. He wants to teach you. He wants to also rebuke you for things that you think that you know, but you know what? You just don't know. Because God's ways aren't our ways. The thoughts of this world and of men around us are not the thoughts of God all the time. Sometimes those things don't even add up and they're 180 degrees apart. And what we need to realize is that God will rebuke us. If you think you think something and you don't even know why you think it, but yet you're so convinced you know it, but you don't even know why you know it, the word of God will penetrate that nonsense and say, you're nuts. You don't know what you're talking about. But God will say, but good, I'm glad now we got that across because the next step is correction. Now I'll teach you how to think right according to the perspective of God and then you will know the truth. So, and the purpose of all of that is what? So that we will become, what? Adequately equipped to do what God has called us to do in the limited period of time in which God gives us to live out our lives here on this earth. So that the man and woman, the man of God, will be adequately equipped adequately equipped we don't need anything else but what god gives us here we don't need anything else we don't need anybody else's opinion we don't need anybody's philosophies we don't need anything else we will be adequately equipped to do what god has called us to do and that are the works of righteousness before god to do the right thing before god this is all we need right here and so as we look at that and consider that we also need to recognize as you turn to the book of daniel in daniel chapter 8 we're going to learn something new And I'm convinced that what we learn is going to sometimes challenge the things that we think that we know. Other times what it's going to do, it's going to correct us in how we think. And then it's obviously always going to adequately equip us. And in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we read these words as we see that Daniel has another vision. And the vision we find in Daniel chapter 8 is as outlined here. In the third year... Of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. It says, And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking, that I was in the citadel, the capital of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was besides the Ulai Canal. It says, Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, <clears throat> excuse me, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram, and he shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, 
and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. As we read this, it's obvious as we go through it that it's going to be difficult to try to understand the things that are written before us. But yet it will be fascinating as we go through it how simple it really is as we get down and understand what it is that God is saying. In Daniel chapter 8, there are four areas that I like to put it this way, that we will eventually examine. But uh, before we jump into uh, the text, it's important to understand that there's a significant change that takes place in the original language at this time. The preceding section of Daniel, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, up through the conclusion of chapter 7, verse 28, the language was a language that was written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was a language that was true of the four empires in which we studied as far as world history is concerned. Now, what's fascinating about that is, is that that particular section of the Bible has to do with what's called the time of the Gentiles, and the focus is on those particular empires. There's going to be a change that takes place from this point in Daniel 8, verse 1, through the rest of the, through the, rest of the book of Daniel, because now the language goes back to Hebrew, which is the language of the nation of Israel, and the concentration will be, the focus will be on the people and the nation of Israel and the promises that God had made to them specifically... And when we understand that, it'll help us to understand some of the difficult texts that we look at and say, this is difficult to understand, but not with the backdrop of who God was trying to reach with that particular message. So we need to recognize that is very important. Now, the first thing that I want you to see is the importance that we find of the place and the time of the vision that we see in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Let's go back and look at that again. Notice what he says. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one that was previously, that had previously appeared. And I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was besides the Ulai Canal. The passage tells us that it was in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, which is important because we know from history that that was approximately 547 B.C. or eight years before the fall of Babylon to the Persians in 539 B.C., which we studied in chapter 5. If you remember, chapter 5 dealt with the fall of Babylon. Now we're going back in time. So this particular vision occurs eight years prior to the fall of Babylon to the Persians. And actually, at that time, was to the Medes. Now, when we look at that and understand that, it's critical that you recognize how important that one little detail is. When God gave this vision to Daniel, the vision occurs two years, what he says. He says, this is after the one that was subsequently given to me. We know from chapter 7, if you go back to verse 1, it was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on the bed, which we discussed as we studied Daniel chapter 7. So now as we're looking at this, he's saying it was the second vision that I had, subsequent to the first. It was eight years prior to the fall of Babylon, and it was in the third year of the reign or regency of Belshazzar, who was co-regent with his father Nebuchadnezzar. So we understand from history what's going on. Now some of you are sitting there going, why is this so important to understand? Well, the importance of it is, is this. As you look at what's told to us in the text, Daniel sees himself, notice, in the vision, he says in verse 2, that while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa. Some of your translations say that he was in the capital of Shushan. And what you need to recognize is Susa was the Greek name for Susa. Susa was the Greek name. The Hebrew name was Shushan. It was the same place. And basically what it was, it was the capital. It was the capital. Susa was the city. And it would become the capital of the Persian Empire, which is fascinating. 
because he finds himself in the capital city of the Persian Empire, which we know doesn't even take place at least until another eight years from there. And listen to me, it's 100 years later before the Persians ever moved to this particular mountainous area of Elam to build this capital city or the citadel of Susa. So what Daniel sees in this vision is a time in the future where 100 years from the moment that he sees the vision given to him by God, he sees himself standing in a capital city which is yet to be developed by an empire which hasn't even come into an existence. And he's standing by the Ulai Canal, which was a canal that was built by the Medes and Persians, tying together two rivers that were in that mountainous area to feed that particular area so that there would be beautiful lush vegetation and all the needs that were being met for this particular building project that they had and ultimately for the inhabitants of that city. Now recognize something very clearly. God is giving him a vision of a date in, in the future that he clearly sees and begins to outline things that in no way, shape, or form can any human being know with such intricate detail what was about to take place. The importance of the place and the time. God, every detail that we have is there for a purpose. As he stands and he looks, he's in a capital city built by people who haven't come into power that would build it a hundred years later and also build a canal that would tie together rivers, which was a major building problem archaeological digs have discovered as far as the Medes and the Persians were concerned. This is fascinating stuff. Why does God go into such great details? Well, let's take a moment just to go over something that I want to get across right now. It says that God communicated to Daniel in a vision. Let's just deal with that fact for a second. Because at that time in history, God chose to communicate his plans, his purpose, his mind, his will to men in a variety of ways. The Bible tells us he communicated through his written word. And we'll notice in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2 that as Daniel was looking and observing the events that were taking place in his own time, the first thing that he did was he went to the written word of God to try to ascertain what it was that he was seeing unfold before him. That's a fascinating thing, and we'll get into that in Daniel chapter 9. But what's fascinating about it is this. You know, we've got all the Middle East peace accords and these things that are going on around us. The first thing that Daniel did was he went to the Word of God to try to figure out, hey, you know what? What history is unfolding right before our very eyes? That's good stuff. He didn't ask anybody else's opinion. He wasn't going out for the next speculation. He wasn't turning the radio on to hear what somebody else's opinion of it was. He went right to the Word of God and dug into it, and he was going, whoa, this is exciting stuff. But you have to come to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to get to that. That's good, too. But um, So anyways, you're looking at this, the whole idea of a vision. God communicated to man through the written word as it existed at the time. He communicated through the spoken word. We know from Isaiah that the Bible says many times that God just said, Thus saith the Lord, that God audibly spoke to people. Which is exciting because I know some of you think, You know, if God would just speak to me today, you know, I just need to know, God, would you just talk to me? Hold that thought for a second. I'm going to get back to you. God also spoke through dreams and through visions, as we've seen in the book of Daniel. He also spoke through angelic teachings. But it's important to recognize that God does not communicate to people that way any longer. The book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, tells us very specifically that God in prior days spoke through the prophets, spoke through in a, a variety of manners, the spoken word, the written word, the visions, the dreams, angelic teachings. God did all of that. But the Bible goes on to say this, but in, our, in the latter days, he has spoken to us once and for all. The essence of his message is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
What God whispered to us in the prophets and the law, he shouts forth in the essence and the person of Christ and what he did here on earth. It's fascinating. And we also know that in A.D. 96, the canon or the complete word of God was finished and God reveals his will. Everything that we need is found in the word of God. Now, why is that so important? Because we live in a day where people want to know what's going on and what the future holds, and they're turning to a variety of sources to try to come up with the answers to that question. And we hear things like, you know, well, God spoke to me in a dream. He spoke to me in a vision. God, give me a vision of the future. Let me tell you something. Anybody that says something like that to you, let me just share this with you so you don't miss it, and I'll make it as clear as possible. Anybody that tells you that God spoke to him in a dream or God spoke to him in a vision or anything like that, can I just make a statement? They're nuts. They're lunatics, they're crazy people. And, and what I would recommend, the next thing you do is run as fast as you can. Just get away from them. Because the more you hang out with lunatics, the easier it is to believe that you're sane. <laughs> is that true? You get a whole bunch of loony people hanging out together and they all believe that they're just as sane as a person with them. And they're all nuts. problem is you don't know because you're in the middle of it. And it's amazing how quickly we can be deceived to begin to believe the lie instead of the truth. So the issue is this. We need to get into the word of God, which is truth. Because the truth sets us free from all the confusion. Now some of you are thinking, well, how can we believe Daniel? How do we know that his vision is true? Well, that's a great question. And it's a valid question. And I think a lot of it has to do with, let's just simply look at what takes place and see if what he does tell us actually came to pass as he said it would. Because the test of a prophet of God was, if he said something was from God, the test was very simple. If it came true... It might be from God. If it continues to come true, then it is from God. If it doesn't come true, guess what they did to people like that? They killed them. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, think about it. You know, there's people spending a ton of money calling psychics and people to try to tell them, what's the future hold? The first time they told you something wasn't true, off the air. (laughs) Refund your money. Can you imagine? That's exactly what they did. That was a test of the prophet of God who claimed to be speaking for God. If it didn't come true the way he said, then he wasn't representing God because God isn't what? He's not a liar. So they killed him. Pretty clean program. (laughs) Couldn't get elected on that platform. (laughs) But a good one nonetheless. Verse 1 and 2 again. Let's look at it. So Daniel sees a vision of a time in his future... And gives us details that are nothing short of miraculous when you look at it with the hindsight of history. Susa would become the capital of the Persian Empire, which has not yet even come into existence. That would take place eight years later. The capital city wouldn't be built for a hundred years beyond that. It was in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, who was king, and it took place eight years, as I said, prior to the fall of Babylon. Not only is that remarkable from a historical standpoint, but we also know this, that the Persian king Xerxes would one day build a magnificent palace in Susa, And in fact, it was the very place that everything that's recorded in the book of Esther took place. And it was also in that very palace where Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Isn't that great? That's good stuff. And as we look at this, why is this so important? Uh, I hope you haven't missed it. Why is this so important? Because at the time that the vision was given to Daniel, it related to future events that would not be fulfilled in many instances until hundreds of years later. We lose the significance of that because we are on this side of it and we look back. And we've got what they say, the benefit, the 2020 hindsight benefit, which hindsight isn't always 2020, by the way. But for the most part, you can look back and you get a pretty accurate picture. 
Well, what's fascinating about it is we can look back and all this, the facts are laid out and the evidence is all there for us to examine. But what's really remarkable and wonderful is this, that Daniel recorded these events before they happened and they were 100% accurate and they withstood the test of time. That doesn't come from the pea brain of any human being. It's impossible. It is a miraculous revealing of the Word of God, the will of God. And we're just getting started. That's pretty good so far, huh? Number two, let's look at the identity of a conflict that takes place that's laid out for us in this particular passage. Starting with verse 3 through 8, we'll read these words. It says, Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him, it says, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. It says that he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram, shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue him, the ram, from his power. Then the male goat exceedingly became exceedingly great, but as soon as he was mighty, and it says that the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. In this particular passage, we are identifying a conflict that takes place that is to take place at some point in a future time. And as we look at what God has to say, we'll also see that as Daniel's taking in the scene, he couldn't help but look around. History tells us that Susa was probably one of the most magnificent cities that was ever built. Archaeology and archaeological digs have uh, determined the same thing. It was located high in the mountainous region of Elam, and it was a captivating site says it was beautiful, and the rivers that fed it were magnificent rivers. And it reminds me, sometimes if you see a scene like that, uh, you can't help but just to take it all in and to look around and observe what's going on around you. Uh, We had the opportunity to spend some time in Europe, and we were going through Switzerland, and I was thinking about how just beautiful it is what God has created. And you start to look around, and we're in Zermatt, and you're looking around at the real Matterhorn. And and I I never even knew that's where Disney got the idea. But... um, but, but uh, you're looking around and there's this beautiful picture and there's, there's these crystal lakes that are there and there's streams that feed it and it's just a magnificent sight and you're looking at all this and if you've ever been in a place like that you know exactly what I'm talking about and Daniel was standing with this as a backdrop and he's looking all around and he can't help but take it all in. This is a fantastic place. And yet as he takes it all in there's something that's going on as he sees it and he says there's a ram that's standing by the canal or the river with two long horns yet one horn was longer than the other even though the longer horn came up later. Now you're asking what in the world's going on? Well that's exactly what Daniel wanted to know. You know what's going on here? Fortunately we don't have to speculate because God's word is clear and history verifies the accuracy of what we're about to learn. So let's start with the first thing and that's this. Let's take a look at the prominence of this ram that's pictured here. We're told several interesting things. First of all, there's an unusual characteristic about this ram. Notice it says it has two horns. And the one horn came up first, and the second horn came up second, and the second horn actually came up after the first one, and that one was longer than that. Now, we've already know as we've gone through this that the Medes and the Persian, or the empires of Media and Persia, were two separate nations that were, were basically run by cousins who didn't like one another. They never got along. 
and that in fact they were always in constant battle with one another. Well, the Medes, the Median Empire, rose first, but as history dictates to us later, the Persian Empire came afterwards and was greater than that of Media, and was and is what we know throughout history. It gets all the ink and all the pub because the Persians did more things. Now, what was interesting about all of that is is that when they finally consolidated into one empire, which we've already seen in the visions prior to that in Daniel chapter seven, so it's called retention. You got to retain what we've already learned because God's going to build upon it. That's an interesting concept. You know, kind of carry this forth because there's a you know there's a thought process taking place here. And the bottom line is this: that the Medes came first, the Persians came after. The Persians became a greater empire. If you remember the illustration that God used, or the picture of a bear, that the bear was lopsided or was up on one side, and one side was greater. The thought continues the same way. And as we look at this, the Medes and the Persians. Then, when when the Persia conquered the Medes, guess what happened? They all got along. And yes, usually the way it works, when one conquers the other, then they can get to do what they want to do, and that's basically what happened. And as we look at all this, it's fascinating because the Medes came first, the Persians came second, but the Persians were greater than the Medes, and uh, history records that. And we have a lot of other history that validates the word of God from what God has to say. Notice it says that there's a ram, had two horns, was standing in front of the canal, the two horns were long, one was longer than the other, and with the longer one coming up last, and it said, and I saw the ram budding. Notice this, even the directions are given to us as far as how the Persian empire began to conquer its world at that time it says that the the persian the ram budding westward northward southward and no beast or no people could stand before it, it says nor was there anyone to rescue from his power but he did as he pleased the king of persia and magnified himself the bottom line in intricate detail and we've got the hindsight once again of history to realize that the persian empire advanced exactly as the word of god tells a hundred years prior to it even taking place. They want the direction that God said they would go. The sovereignty of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God is all laid out before us. And it's fascinating when you, when you take a look at all that. It's also interesting, too, that some of you are sitting there going, well, how do you really know what you're talking about? How do you know that the Medes and the Persians are actually the ram that we see here? Look at the Bible. Good place to start. Go to verse 20 of chapter 8. Look at it now. With me. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Isn't that great? Can't miss that. It's amazing to me how people get all confused and thrown off as far as prophecy is concerned. Why? Read the text. And here, there's a little more insight. And the shaggy goat, which we'll talk about next, represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn is that between his eyes is the first king. We'll talk about Greece more in a minute. But what's fascinating as far as archaeological discoveries are, the guardian spirit of Persian history appears with clean feet and sharp pointed horns. As a matter of fact, the Persian king, when he led his nation into battle, guess what he wore on his head? He didn't wear a crown or a diadem. What he wore was a big old ram head. Interesting. And that's exactly what God says would happen. Here's something else that's kind of fascinating too as I was digging through all this Persian uh, Zoroastrianism which is a dualism between light and darkness and that which, which also is the foundation of the current popular astrological chart that we know as the Zodiac came out of the Persian Empire. And it's interesting that the sign of the Zodiac, Persia uh, was under Aries, the ram, and Greece was under the sign of Capricorn, the goat. 
it's fascinating that many of this world's deceptions have a slight twist of truth. And it's the deception of truth that lures people away from the truth. If you notice that any cult that comes into existence, you say, how can people follow such nonsense? Because there's just enough truth to it to lure people away until they get sucked in and they're in there with all the rest of the idiots and they think that what they believe is true. There's just enough truth in it to lure people into falsehood. The word of God is truth. The word Capricorn is from two words. Caper, which refers to goat, and cornu, which refers to a horn. Which is also interesting when we consider all of this. And in fact, in an ancient synagogue at the time of Christ, there was found on a Jewish synagogue, the zodiac in a beautiful mosaic was found on the floor. Let me just tell you guys something. If you look, in, if you look to your astrological chart, why? Why? Why would you look at that nonsense when you've got the truth of the Word of God? You wake up in the morning and you turn to your chart and see what kind of day you're going to have. What? Why don't you wake up in the morning, turn to the Lord, thank Him for another day, get in the Word a little bit, and then go out and, uh, you know what, make it the kind of day that God wants you to have. It's a whole different way of thinking. You know, some people, they look at their chart and they don't even go outside. I'm going to have a bad day. I ain't going nowhere. Come on now, think about what we're doing. It's interesting. As Daniel was observing how great the Persians are and had become, he was startled by the sudden appearance of this goat. Let's take a look at that. He says in verse 5, he says, While I was observing, behold, was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. You notice that? It says, while he was looking at how great this Persian empire had become, out of nowhere, seemingly, came this goat that began to charge this nation. And we already know from verse 21 that the goat is the Greek or Macedonian, uh, the Greco-Macedonian empire. We already know that. God tells us that. We don't have to guess. So here comes the, the empire of Greece, seemingly out of nowhere, following along the same uh, description that God gave it in Daniel chapter 7, saying it was a panther which strikes quickly and had four wings on its back, saying the swiftness of its strike. And here's this empire that comes out of seemingly nowhere and just goes quickly, and its feet aren't even touching the ground. That's how fast this thing is moving. We know from history that the Greeks loved to fight, but they never had any motivation to do anything with this love for fighting. And all of this changed when Philip of Macedon came back where he was being held captive and he noticed and observed you know, these great techniques of warfare or strategies of warfare when he had a son who was Alexander who became Alexander the Great. We know from history that Alexander is that horn or that king, the first great king of the, Macedonian, the Greco-Macedonian Empire and that Alexander stood up and began to come up with a game plan to go out and conquer the whole world. As we look at this, he put this together, the strategy what was fascinating. And in fact, as he developed his army, some of the history about all is that he developed, he had a problem with communication because there was no common language. And it was Alexander the Great who developed the Koine Greek language, which was a common language that was known to all at the time of Christ. And it was a, and it was a language that was accepted by everyone that was there to eliminate the communication problems. So Alexander was a great strategy. Uh, uh, 
strategic general, so to speak, when it came to military strategy. He was a terrible student. He hated school. He wasn't, he wasn't bent towards school. But when he got into the niche that he had a passion for, guess what happened? He turned the world upside down, and God said that he would. And it was in 334 B.C. that Alexander began his conquest of his attack that was with vengeance against the Persians. Now, when you look at all that, it says that he, he started to... Um, go after the Persians, and the purpose of going after them says that he came towards the two-headed ram that I saw. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his horns. It says that he went after him with a vengeance. And the reason that he went after the Persians with a vengeance is because the Persians had destroyed the Greek armies at a place called a Marathon. Now, this is, kind of, this is for free. I'll throw this out. But at the Battle of Marathon, the Greeks were defeated by the Persians. There was a guy who was at the battle who witnessed this, and his name was Pheidippides. Now, Pheidippides, who saw that the Greeks were beat by the Persians, ran toward the city of Athens to declare that their army had just been beaten at Marathon. Think about this for a second. Guess how long or how far it was from Marathon to Athens? It was 26 miles, exactly. Now, they added the 385 yards later when there was a marathon that was run in England and because the queen couldn't see the finish line, they added, extended 385 yards. So that's more than you ever want to know about running a marathon. But the fascinating thing about the marathon little run was this. The first marathon that was run was run by this Greek named Pheidippides to let people know that their army was defeated at Marathon by the Persians. When he got there, he, he, he let everybody know that they had been defeated. And guess what happened to Pheidippides? He died. He dropped dead. Now, I've run three marathons. I'm not a very quick learner. That's about three more than anybody ever should run. Just from the history of that. But what's fascinating about it is, is that this is all laid out for us as we go through the Word of God. And the point of all of this is this. In 334 B.C., Alexander the Great mounted an army that within under four years to 331 B.C., it took less than four years to conquer the great Persian Empire, and not only that, but to conquer an area of territory that would be equivalent to the size of the United States from its east coast to its west coast in under four years. Notice what the Bible has to say, that when this goat came, it came so fast that its feet didn't even touch the ground. It came so fast that it was like a panther with four wings on its back. And a panther by itself is swift enough. But you add four wings and it's just unheard of that any empire would fall that quickly or any empire would rise that quickly. Isn't that interesting? Alexander was a physically tough, brave man in battle. We're told that the male goat became exceedingly great. And what's fascinating to me is this you have to ask yourself a question, what happened to Alexander the Great? Alexander, at the age of 20, chose 20 of his generals, and 18 of those 20 would go on to become kings after his death. The man knew how to choose military personnel. The man was the greatest military strategist probably to ever walk the face of the earth. The man became exceedingly great, the Bible tells us. Can you imagine how great this guy was and the awe that people had? It's fascinating when you consider it. And as we look at all this, he was a man of great personal discipline, which I find fascinating. 
The Bible records how great he was. Secular history records how great he was. He was a man of physical and and personal self-discipline. We're told in history that he was a guy who believed this. Until one conquers his own body, he cannot conquer others around him. He was a man that in that position of leadership never fell into sexual immorality, which was unheard of for those days. He never had a mistress. He had two wives, and the only reason he had two wives was because it was politically the right thing to do for particular reasons. And so he never fell into any problems as far as what most people in great leadership positions tend to find themselves succumbing to those types of temptations. And so we look at this, and you have to ask yourself the question, what happened to this great man? Was he conquered by an enemy? How was this great man broken? Look at chapter 1, verse 8. It says, the male goat... Let's just look at it for who he is. We know he is Alexander the Great, the Greco-Macedonian Empire. The male goat, Alexander, became great. He magnified himself exceedingly. But notice this. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. As soon as he was mighty, at the pink of his strength, that horn was broken. You know how he was broken? He died of alcohol-related poisoning. He sat and argued on the banks of the Euphrates River with his generals when they told him, we sent out scouts, there's no more land to conquer, there's nowhere else to go. You got it all! Everything the world had to offer, I can't help but recognize the parallels between Alexander the Great and every other great person that's ever lived in the history of the world. We learned about Nebuchadnezzar and he had the same problem. He had everything the world had to offer and yet he was empty and there was something missing in his life. Solomon had all that the world had to offer and he came to this conclusion. He said, you know what, I had it all. I had everything. I had money, I had fame, I had women, I had power, I had everything I could ever want. He said, and you know what his conclusion was? Until a person has a right relationship with a God who made him, you have nothing. Vanity, it's all vanity, it's all useless, it's all, there's no satisfaction in any of it. And Alexander the Great, at the age of 32, sat down on the banks of the Euphrates rivers after arguing with his generals who told him, Sir, there's nowhere else to go. You are king of the world! In his depression, he sat down and he literally drank himself to death. And he died of alcohol-related poisoning. And I want you to recognize something that I don't think is a coincidence and I think it's a warning to God's people. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and ultimately the Romans were all defeated at some point by alcoholism. We live in a culture today, and I don't want you to miss this, because you're going to go home, and I'll go home, and I'll turn on football games, and I'll watch about a trillion beer commercials. And they're funny. And, they're, you know, and, 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 and they make their point. But the point that they make is this, that you cannot be satisfied in life unless you drink Lohenbrau, Michelob, Heineken, I don't know. But that completes it all. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon said, you know what, I, I entertained all those things, and you know what, I was still miserable, and I was still lonely, and I still didn't have completion, I still didn't have contentment. We have all kind of legislation that we pass in our country, which is good, and rightfully so, to condemn the use of illicit drugs. 
We're all worried about cocaine. We're all worried about crack. We're all worried about, you know, uh, methamphetamines. We're all worried about heroin. We're all worried about marijuana. We're all worried about all those things. And you know what's funny? Is the majority of that legislation takes place with, with legislators sitting around during happy hour having a drink. They go out and they entertain. The lobbyists go out and entertain. And guess what they do? They do it over happy hour. Now, don't miss this. The word of God is very clear. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. And whoever gets intoxicated by it is not wise. What's fascinating about our culture is this. We're warned about the use of illicit drugs. You know, here's, here's an egg. Here's an egg on drugs. Your brain on drugs. Whatever, you know. And, and all these things. But what's so funny about that is this. Then we hear this message. And if you drink, drink responsibly. And if you drink, don't drive. The message isn't, hey, here's your brain. Here's your brain after a six-pack of cheap beer. No, we don't hear that. We don't hear that at all. Why? Because we're led to believe there's nothing wrong with it. But the Word of God gives clarity, doesn't it? And history gives clarity as well. Alexander sat by the banks of the Euphrates River, the greatest person to ever live as far as military strategist. And guess what happened? He died of alcohol-related poisoning. He literally drank himself to death. The great, at the height of his greatness, was broken. And he wasn't even conquered by an enemy. He was conquered by the enemy within. And that was himself who allowed himself to be put in that position. I think that the warning needs to go out and make it as clear as possible. You know what? There is nothing good that comes out of drinking. Absolutely nothing good. And yet, you know, some go, oh, well, you know, you're kind of being a legalist. I'm just looking at the Word of God and I'm looking at history and I'm looking at all the problems that you know, drinking causes and I'm asking myself some question, how smart is it? Well, God says that whoever gets drunk is not wise. So he says it's not smart. I was reading the paper the other day. A guy plays for the Los, uh, Los Angeles, St. Louis Rams. <laughs> and uh, he's celebrating his 24th birthday with a bunch of friends. Jumps, in, jumps into his vehicle, drives through the city of St. Louis, 11 o'clock at night, goes through a red light, hits broadside a car of a woman going home to see her kids, 47-year-old woman, killed instantly in an you know, in a, in a alcohol-related accident. His statement was, I didn't see the red light. His blood alcohol level said, well, obviously, because you had a .19. Everything you saw was pink. And you have to ask yourself a question. Is it worth it? I know some of you are sitting there going, oh, this is so uncomfortable. (laughs) And I say, good. (laughs) I mean, what are we going to do? Avoid the uncomfortable things? If you want to avoid the uncomfortable, don't come here. Because if, (laughs) seriously, if you get, I mean, if the word of God's going out, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you're waking up to astrology charts, you're offended. If you're going right now, going, Ann, I need a drink. (laughs) This may be bothering you a little bit. But we just need to lay it out as it is. What's fascinating is this. The Greco-Macedonian Empire was never the same after the fall of Alexander the Great. The Bible records 200 years hundreds of years, literally, before it happened. 
In verse 8, it says, The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Those four conspicuous horns, history tells us, were his generals, Lysimachus, who took over Asia Minor and Thrace, Cassander, who took the territory of Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus, who took Syria and Babylon, and the Seleucid dynasty would come out of his particular reign, which we'll talk about because his empire was known as the... He was the king of the north, which we'll study in Daniel chapter 11. Ptolemy took Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, and Arabia and became the king of the south. And the conflict between the north and the south is discussed later in our studies in Daniel chapter 11. I'll tell you what, I don't want you to miss this because it doesn't get any better than this. When did Daniel get the vision of what would take place? He got it in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. Eight years before Persia, hundred years before the citadel in Susa, hundreds of years before Alexander the Great, which, who would arise and conquer the world faster than any army and empire has ever done in the history of the world. Alexander was great, and at the height of his greatness, he was broken, and he wasn't conquered by anybody but himself. And out of that one great general came four great generals who would divide the nation of Greece into four kingdoms or empires, And it all took place exactly as the Word of God foretold. What do we learn in our time together? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for training, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do the works of God. God's Word is absolutely 100% trustworthy and reliable. We can't pick and choose what we like and don't like, whether we will obey or won't obey. There's so much speculation and opinion as to what this world is coming to. Many are turning in a variety of directions which we've already discussed. Even the church has lost her first love and has gone far from the Word of God and the truth of God. And I'm going to ask you a question that you need to ask of yourself. Are you looking for answers in life? If you are, are you looking for answers in every area of life? If you are, where are you looking? What I would suggest that you do is turn to the written Word of God, the Bible. There is nothing more reliable. Where can you turn today that would prove more reliable than this little section? Eight verses is all we did. Where can you turn today that will give you more reliable information and facts than what we just studied in our limited time that we had today? And that is scratching the surface of what God has to offer in His Word. Do you want to get right with God? Then you turn to the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That you can't get right with God until you hear the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God says, for there's none righteous, no, not one. The Word of God says, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Word of God says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the Word of God says. 
And what we need to recognize and understand is we cannot become people who pick and choose the things of God's Word that we like and discount the things that we don't like. And if you look at the nonsense in our culture today, we have people that claim we got people walking out of churches with the Bible under their arm and they don't, they don't apply a thing that's in it. Or they even contradict it. Well, yeah, I believe it's the Word of God, but I don't believe all of it's the Word of God. Then my question to them is, well, what part do you believe and what part don't you believe and how did you come to that conclusion? I have more respect for somebody that says, I don't believe anything in the Bible. I think it's a book of nonsense. And at least I can challenge them to consider digging in and checking it out. And when the facts are all laid out, you know what they usually do? They drop on their knees before God because it's an absolute miracle the Word of God reveals who God is. The Word of God reveals the plan of God. The Word of God reveals everything we need to know about God, past, present, and future. The Word of God reveals everything that we need to know about how to get right with God. And we know that it's true as we're exposed to the truth of the Word of God. What's fascinating is we got people who stand at the pulpit, they read one verse, and they don't even talk about what's in it. They go off on some tangent, and it has nothing to do with the Word of God. What I say is stop even using it because you're sucking people into a bunch of nonsense and lies. If you're going to pick up the Word of God, let's dig in and let's study it verse by verse and allow God to instruct us in His truth. Let's close with this. Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see something. And I want you to see it and I don't, I don't want you to grab onto it and I don't want you to miss it. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. We read this. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although He existed in the form of God did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and he took on the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. It says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. What must we do to be saved from the consequence of sin? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The, the name of Jesus is significant. By whose authority... Who, who, by whose authority have you been sent? In the name of Jehovah God. God, Yahweh, is what Moses said as Pharaoh asked him the question. By whose name have you come here? I've come by the name of God. The name meant something special. It was a name of authority. And it says, as we're told here, that God highly exalted him and bestowed the name which is above every other name, meaning this, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Word of God is truth. We learned it just as we studied the book of Daniel. The Word of God is truth. Philippians chapter 2. We learn this. That you know what? There's coming a point in time where every human being will bow and present themselves before Jesus Christ to be judged. Those who wait until after death to bow and say that he's Lord, it's too late. The Bible says that'll be the last thing that they do before they are sent away from God, separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. Well, they'll be weeping and gnashing and eternal torment. The Bible says the last thing that they'll do before the throne of Jesus Christ is call him Lord. And then he will be separated from eternity. The Bible says this of you and I, and it takes humility to do it, doesn't it? It takes a humble heart, a broken and contrite heart God won't despise. It takes a humble heart to say, Lord, you're right. I'm guilty. I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I fall short of your standards. All I've got to do is check a couple of things that you say and realize I don't, I don't measure up. And if what you say is true, then guess what? I need to get right with you. 
I need to humble myself before God and say, God, I confess, I agree, I can't do this on my own. I need you to forgive me. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, for it's by your grace I'm saved through faith and not of myself. It's a gift that you're offering, and it's not of works, so none of us will ever boast in the kingdom of God. We will all be there by the grace of God because we believed in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The Bible says if you do that now, you know what else it says? It says that you're right with God, that you are eternally forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and even future. That Jesus Christ died for you, a propitiation, a satisfying sacrifice to the Father. And he has taken sin away from you forever. That you'll be born again, that you'll be right with God. You'll have spiritual awareness because the Spirit of God will be given to you as a down payment. That God's promises are true. You'll be able to understand the Word of God. Where maybe you're sitting there now going, I don't even understand a thing that's going on. God says, you know what? When you humble yourself before God and you admit that you're a sinner and you invite Christ into your life, the Spirit of God will come in and guess what? You'll begin to understand the things of God. You'll sit and you'll study the Word of God and it all makes sense to you. And you go, this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen. This is the Word of God. This is wonderful stuff. The Bible also goes on to say this. When you die, absent from your body, you'll be present with the Lord because you trusted in Christ as your Savior. The Bible says that Jesus today at this very moment is preparing a place for those who have trusted in Him. And He said, and if it wasn't that way, I wouldn't have told you that because I cannot lie. And in God, there is no darkness at all. The question I have for you is this. Where do you want to spend eternity? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Bible says that you have a choice. That you have a choice to spend eternity with God or to spend an eternity separated from God in a place that he never even designed for people. They were designed for Satan and the demons. But unfortunately, it's a place that people chose to go because they rejected the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. May I say to you and challenge you to consider that all of those truths which I just shared are just as reliable as the truth that God shared in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, that history proved to be 100% reliable. And history will prove that the word of God is 100% reliable. Why? Because the word of God is the same yesterday, day, and forever. And that the word of God will never fade away. Father, thank you for this time to be together. God, I just pray for those who are turning to foolish speculation and nonsense that they'll trust in your word and go back to your word. I pray for those that are here listening to this that have never confessed their sin before you, that have never accepted Christ as a provision for that sin, and that they're going to experience your judgment one day for their rejection of this truth. I just pray that you'll soften their hearts and that you'll convict them of this truth. That as they look at Daniel chapter 8 and the historical evidence that's reliable and trustworthy, that they'll see that your word is true. And what you said about the nations of Persia and the nation of of Greece and Alexander and all the details, intricate details that were hundreds and hundreds of years before they came into existence, that they would see that the same thing is true of salvation. The same thing is true of forgiveness and heaven and hell and judgment and righteousness and all that's yet to come in our future. God, we just thank you that you love people so much that you've presented your word. You've entrusted us with this great treasure. I just pray that we continually turn to it as a source of all the information that we'll ever need in every area of life. And I just thank you and praise you for what you've done here even today as your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word went out on ears that heard, that as they hear, they'll apply, and their lives will be different because of you. God, I just thank you and I praise you. In Christ's name, amen.